Carcon Carne is sponsored by Sopal Solar. As interest rates are climbing, rocketing for mortgages and credit cards and car loans, how about having cost certainty on your electric bill? Know what you're going to pay every month and have that amount be less than you're paying right now. All it takes is switching to solar. Sopal Solar is how you get there. My friend, Brent Sopal, he used to be a Chicago Blackhawk. He will help you switch to solar. It costs nothing for the consultation, costs nothing out of pocket, and the savings you can get this year while the year is still in progress from both state and federal add up to like 48%. It's significant. Switch to solar, get a 25-year warranty, Go green. Do it now. Tell Brent I said hi. SopalSolar.com. It's car con carne. Let's eat in the car. It's car con carne. And now here's the star of our show. James Van It seems like the 1990s were a really long time ago. I, okay, they were a really long time ago. Do you miss that period? Do you miss grunge and punk and indie, all the music from that decade? What if, what if you could time travel back to the 90s? Think about all the cool shows you could see. Maybe see some shows again, see some shows for the first time. That's the premise behind the brand new novel, 90 Days in the 90s, a rock and roll time travel story, the ultimate novel about the 90s and Chicago's music scene, not just any music scene in the 90s, the one right here in Chicago, which was, by all accounts, including mine, amazing. Join record store owner Darby on her trip back to 90s Chicago as she jumps on the mysterious gray line to time travel back to her carefree 20s, soaking everything up, pop culture, rock and roll nostalgia. If you want to learn more, go to 90daysinthe90s.com and get a signed copy of the book while you're there. You can also pick it up on Amazon or wherever. 90 days in the 90s. It is Carcoon Carne. I'm James Van Osdell. And the music photography of Paul Natkin has, for decades, been pretty much the gold standard for how musicians should be captured on film. It's been a long time coming, but Paul's most iconic and some of his most interesting work is finally collected in a gorgeous coffee table book. It's called Natkin, The Moment of Truth. From Muddy Waters to Johnny Cash, David Bowie to the Beastie Boys, Paul's lens caught major artists across all genres in unforgettable images. Now, I've known Paul forever. I, I don't think I've ever interviewed him, so this is a first. Uh, Paul Natkin, it is lovely to see you, and I, this is long overdue. It's quite an introduction. I, I think you're worthy of it. I mean, you're the guy. I mean, for people who take images of musicians, you are the person, you're their touchstone. You're, you're their wow. guiding light. That's a scary thought. <laughs> Uh, but it's true. And looking at this book, their sights higher. Looking at this book, you're such a Chicago Midwestern self-deprecating guy, but that's not the truth. You are uh, you're excellent at what you do, and it, you can see proof of that in Natkin, the moment of truth. Uh, I I said it, but this is long overdue, isn't it? I mean, it, it seems like this is a book that we've all been waiting for from you or some sort of collection from you. Well, uh, you know, I hate to be negative right off the start, but I never wanted to do a book I, because everybody I know that did a book ended up not making money off of it. And I'm not saying that I'm motivated by money, but it's, it's, you know, it's kind of one of the motivations. And sure. when there's a guy that's kind of was kind of my idol before he passed away, his name was Jim Marshall. Um, you might not know the name, but you'll, you'd know the pictures. He's the guy that took the, Famous picture of Johnny Cash giving him giving him the finger. Uh, he was the last guy to ever photograph the Beatles together on stage at Candlestick Park in San Francisco, and he was the man. And I remember walking into a Best Buy, uh, not Best Buy, a uh, Barnes and Noble, when Barnes and Noble was still around, mm -hmm. and I saw all three of his books on the remainder table for like four dollars a piece. With the red sticker on it. With the red sticker, like, <laughs> yeah. you know, sale, buy one, get one free. Um, and that's when I knew that, you know, like, I mean, if you looked at his work, I mean, I, I know my work is good, but I can't compete with him. And if he couldn't make money doing it, how am I going to make money doing it? So I never wanted to do a book. 
Well, I'm glad you did. And I understand your reasons. I, I loved being able to thumb through this. I mean, the people you shot through the years, I mean, so many of whom aren't are no longer with us. So that's the interesting thing. All these legends, a lot of dead guys in the book. A lot of, I mean, just going down the list, David Bowie, Eddie Van Halen, Michael Jackson, John Lee Hooker, John Prine. I mean, it, what, what a list of artists you, you put a camera in front of. What's interesting <coughs> in the modern day, and we've talked about this off air, so to speak. And I want to bring it up now. The world you came up in, the photography world you came up in is very different from the way concert photography works now and you were the first person to explain this to me the first three song rule at concerts back in the day oh. you shoot an artist and you get to like the end of the set and that's when all the good shit happened that's but when they start that you know they build the they build their set to a climax and by the time the climax happens these days all the photographers are back home watching the news on tv right not because in the building anymore because photographers are allowed first three songs usually right or less or less. Or less. How can you be a photojournalist when the subject you're shooting controls the shot? You can't. Right. You can't. And that's why I don't do it anymore. You don't do it at so all? I'll, I'll do it if somebody will let me shoot what I want, the way I want to shoot it, which happens about one out of 100 bands that comes through town. And they're usually bands that are friends of mine that I've known for years. All the most iconic images in rock and roll were not taken in the first nine or ten minutes. No, absolutely not. I mean, I can honestly say that my guess is if I went back and looked through the, the book, not a single picture in the book was taken during the first three songs. I can't imagine. You, you want the artist to build that momentum and that sweat and feed off the yeah. audience. I mean, yeah. you, you capture that energy in film. Right. And the artists don't want that. Right. They want and to tell you, the story. If you ask them about it, they would tell you they have no, no idea why. Is it a man? Just know thing? that every, everybody else kicks everybody out after three songs. So we got to kick people out after three songs too. God, it's so interesting to me. Like, what are the artists afraid of? Um, they there are a number of things. Number one, it started when MTV came about, and all the videos showed perfect hair and perfect makeup. And after three songs, you start looking a little bedraggled. That's one thing. Another thing is. Uh, I've been told by managers that I make too much money off of them. So they want to limit. One manager told me that I was making too much money off of his bands. And we were sitting just like you and I are sitting right now talking on the phone. And I was in front of my computer and I said, well, are you in front of your computer? And he said, yeah. And I said, well, I'm going to send you my latest sales report from the agency that represents me. And when you get it, open it up. And a minute later, he said, okay, I got it. Open it up. I said, look at the, the last column on the right and read down that column. And that's, the, that's my share of every sale. And all I heard was silence at the other end of the line. And then I heard, oh, my fucking God. <laughs> it's terrible. And because more than half the pictures that the agency that represents me sells my share of the sales under $2. And mo a lot of those pictures are under 25 cents. That's bananas. And let's, let's talk so, about So that, that's a, that's a big part of it. The other part of it is there, this is like a three part answer. The third reason that the three song rule happened was uh, Bruce Springsteen was playing a show at Madison square garden. And there were about a hundred photographers there. <coughs> And they were all using flashes because most of the photographers in New York are paparazzis. Mm -hmm. They don't know how to shoot. So they have to put a flash on their camera. And he walked off stage at intermission and went up to his road manager and said, I can't even concentrate on singing because flashes are going off in my face like every five seconds. And his road manager said, well, let me work on it for tomorrow. And he made a decision that changed the whole world of photography. He could have done one of two things. He could have said, okay, you guys shoot whatever you want, but you can't use the flash. Yeah, that's the easy answer, right? No flash, that's it. Or he could have said, you guys can only shoot the first 10 minutes and then you have to leave. And he made what I think was the wrong decision. But, you know, well, that was 1983. 
Well, and you've got Springsteen images in your book, one of which was turned into a Newsweek magazine cover. Right. And there's no way you shot that picture of the boss in the first. No, because I was always, I was always, and still to this day, I'm I'm allowed to shoot the whole show. Of Springsteen. Yeah. I don't shoot him anymore, but the last time I shot him was at Wrigley Field. And I shot from start to finish. And, you know, the irony is he, I'm in the photo pit. And I look over and standing next to me is Eddie Vedder. And I turned to him and said, hey, what are you doing here? And he said, well, I'm going up on stage in a couple of songs to sing with Bruce. And so I got all the other photographers were gone because it was after the first three songs. Oh, my God. That's and amazing. and about so about five minutes later, he's up there singing with Bruce. He went up like four different times during the show. Tom Morello came out on stage four different times during the show. All of that after the first three songs. So wouldn't that be kind of an important moment in the show? That's crazy. Let's talk about some of these images. I I could do an entire episode on several of these images, uh, but I want to start with Motorhead in Chicago, a picture taken in 1983. This is one of my favorite pictures in the book. You took it at a McDonald's. Right. This is Motorhead at their young, snotty, rock and roll best i i couldn't they were so young they were they were they were already pretty old but they were younger than they are now i was trying to place the based on the the windows in that mcdonald's i was trying to place the neighborhood and i couldn't irving park and central i want to say somewhere in like portage park portage park like right up right up there somewhere you could probably drive down irving park and Look at look, find a McDonald's and then look across the street and see you, you can see a dry cleaners, I think, through the window and tell exactly where it was. But it was, it was just random. You know, I mean, they got in my car and I said, well, you know, what do you want to do? And Lemmy said, well, you know, we need to get some food. So what's better than to take them to McDonald's and take their picture with, you know, Ronald McDonald? That's fantastic. Which is not in the book, but I've got pictures of them like posed with Ronald McDonald and with the Hamburglar. That's amazing. And I guess that leads to a question I was going to ask later. If you're not shooting concerts anymore because of the three song rule and the ridiculousness that exists in, in the pits these days, are you are you doing mostly portraits? Are, are bands- I'm doing mostly sitting at home watching CNN. Well, I'm glad I, I was able to break that up a little bit for you then. Yeah. Well, you know, all CNN is just all. Uh, Florida hurricane stuff right now. I, I just I live for hearing all the bad things that Donald Trump is doing, and I I don't I don't shoot much anymore at all. I shot I shot Buddy Guy's last album, or new his new album cover. That was a portrait. That was a couple months ago. Uh, I shoot maybe once a month. Where in the old days I used to shoot thirty days out of the month. Yeah. I, I I remember, especially in the 90s, as I was starting out in radio, I swear I saw you everywhere. I was everywhere. I went yeah. to every freaking show that happened in Chicago. Sometimes I went to three shows in one night. Yeah. I think we all did back in like the mid 90s. Yeah. Yeah. But I I just, I've photographed over 4,500 artists. My list is about a little over 4,500 names. I mean, either bands or solo artists or individual celebrities, whatever you want to call them. That's amazing. Some of the other pictures I, I was showing as I was preparing for tonight, uh, my son is into country, country and metal, like no points in between. He, he goes, wow. those two, it, it's interesting. Um, but he's fascinated by outlaw country. And I showed him the uh, picture of cash, Johnny cash that's in the book and it stopped him dead in his tracks. And you say in the book that this was basically like bucket list, life-changing moment for you was shooting Johnny cash. Well, you know, all, anybody that's on that level, I'm, I walk in the room and I'm looking around like, is this really me here? You know, because it's Johnny Cash. Yeah, on the, walked, lo- on the level, you mean someone who basically was an architect of modern music. Yeah, yeah, yeah. exactly, exactly. And he walked in and my, my fear is always that they're going to end up being jerks. Sure. And I'm never going to be able to listen to them again because I'm always going to think about them being jerks. But for the most part, they all turn out to be, I mean, Johnny Cash turned out to be the nicest guy 
you'd ever want to meet. And I could have shot him for two hours. He would have skipped his show and just kept on shooting. But, you know, he had to go and do a show. Uh, couldn't have been nicer. I, I, I don't I don't know your craft. So this may sound like a rookie question, but what's the secret to shooting someone like that? Because I'm looking at that picture. And to me, the lighting helps tell the story. You see all the wrinkles and the the age yeah. and the, the history well, in his face. A lot of people don't like that. You know, like if I were shooting Stevie Nicks, I wouldn't be showing the wrinkles because she would hate that. But Johnny Cash loves that. Keith Richards loves that. You know, he earned those wrinkles. He did. He's going to outlive us all. Yeah. The, pic the picture of Keith in your book, the portrait with the, the skull ring. You it, Until I read what you wrote, I hadn't realized this either. He's flipping you off <laughs> in, the, in the picture you took of him. But like he's, he has such this mesmerizing look on his face and you're distracted by the ring. You don't even realize that he's flipping you off. Well, I didn't realize it. I got home and developed the film <laughs> and I made the proofs and I printed some of the other shots on the roll and never saw the finger. I didn't see it when he did it because I'm looking at his face and I'm focusing on his eyes. Yeah. And uh, it was a year later. Somebody came over to my house and people tend to come over to my house and say, hey, can I look through your file cabinets? Which, you know, they're all right over there. They're, yeah. they're all, anybody wants to look at them, as long as they keep them in the right order, I don't care. And I can't remember who this was, but this guy was looking through the Keith Richards photos and all of a sudden he turns to me, he says, why didn't you ever print the one? I circle the ones that I print mm -hmm. on the proof sheets. He said, why didn't you ever print the one where he's giving you the finger? And I looked at him like, what are you talking about? Like, that's the first I saw that. That's amazing. And then that became like my biggest selling print. Oh, for sure. And your relationship with the Stones, I mean, that that's a big career. It started that day. You. Was that really it? That was the first time, first time I met him. And so that was uh, like the talk is cheap, like solo Keith Richards era. Like first solo album. Because that was like 87 or 88, and that was before Steel Wheels. 88. It was yeah. 88. Steel Wheels was 89. Yeah. So I, the sometimes, my next door neighbor was a guy named Don McLeese. Okay. Uh, the greatest music writer ever in the history of Chicago. And uh, he called me up. He was a sometimes music critic. Mm -hmm. He called me up one day and he said, hey, listen, I'm going to New York tomorrow to interview Keith Richards. And the paper won't send a photographer. They're too cheap to send a photographer. So if you want to pay your own way, just come with me. Sleep on the floor in my hotel room and we'll get up in the morning. We'll do this thing and come home. Yeah, who says no to that? How do you say no to that? Yeah, you don't. It was like 400 bucks for a round trip ticket in those days. And uh, we went to Keith's manager's office in Midtown Manhattan. I did the photo shoot. And while I was packing up the stuff, uh, Keith was being interviewed by Don and Don asked him like, Hey, you got the solo album out. Are you going to go out on tour? Because, you know, that's a big thing for somebody from the stones to go out on tour without the rest oh, yeah. of the stones. And Keith said, yeah, we're going to do a tour around Thanksgiving. So I just filed it away in my little brain and I went home and I developed the film and I made a bunch of prints for the sun times because that's who I was working for. Mm -hmm. And when I made the prints, I made an extra one of each print. Because when you're in the darkroom, you make a print, it looks good. You just put another piece of paper and make another one and you're done. Wash them and dry them. So I made a set of prints for the Sometimes and I made another set that I just put in an envelope, eight and a half by 11 envelope, put some stamps on it. And I wrote a note in there. I remember the exact wording of the note. I wrote it to Keith's manager and I said, Hey, I heard you guys are going out on the road. If you need a tour photographer, give me a call, sign my name. And my, it was on my stationery. So she didn't even know me. I mean, she had met me like, you know, two days earlier, no yeah. idea what I did for a living, what kind of work I did. Uh, but my phone number and address were at the bottom of the stationery. And I just threw it in the mailbox on the corner. Now the kids, the kids these days would call that shooting your shot. Yeah. You were shooting your shot with the stones. Yeah. So I, I threw it in the mailbox and just forgot about it. And then two days before Thanksgiving, 
I get a call from Jane Rose, Keith's manager. And she says, uh, so what are you doing tomorrow? And I said, well, I'm getting ready for Thanksgiving. I'm going to my parents' house. And she said, no, you're not. And I said, what do you mean? And she said, get up, get up tomorrow morning, get on a plane, fly to Atlanta, come to get in a cab, come to the Four Seasons or the Ritz-Carlton and uh, call me when you get here. So I had never been on the road with anybody. Right. I had no idea what a tour photographer was supposed to do. I just, you know, it's Keith Richards. How do you, you know, you, you just figure it out. Yeah, fake it till you make it. <clears throat> so I uh, called her up. She says, go out to the tour bus in front of the hotel, put your stuff in the bottom of the bus and just wait in the lobby. We'll be down in about 20 minutes. And 20 minutes later, the elevator opens up and Keith and the expensive winos come walking out and we get on the bus. Nobody knew who I was, except for Keith had met me for five minutes, like a couple months earlier. And I'm just sitting there. I don't even know where to sit on the bus. Right. You know, because there's, there's a hierarchy. There's, 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 a, there's a, there are rules. There's a plan. You know, yeah. everybody has their own seat. And uh, and we drive to the gig and here I am shooting a Keith Richards show. And then we get on the bus and we go to the next city. And all of a sudden I'm, I go from Atlanta, we go up to Boston, we go across the country to LA and we end up back in New Jersey for his birthday party in December. And, uh, and I, I just figured I could die happy now. I've done, I mean, what could, what could be better than that? You know, that's the greatest thing that ever happened to me. So I get home and there's like three weeks of mail in my entranceway at my house. And on the top of the pile, there's a Rolling Stone magazine, like the first issue of 1989. This was like December 20th, mm -hmm. 1988. And so I pick it up and I lay down on the couch and start reading it. And I get to the random notes section. And there's a little article that says the stones are like at that point they hated each other yeah they're all mad at each other and they were never going to tour again and they the article said they've decided to get back together and they're going to do a tour later on in the year so i wrote the same note to the same person hey heard you guys are going on the road if you need a tour photographer let me know same thing happened get a call one day about three weeks into the tour she says, uh, what are you doing tomorrow? <laughs> tomorrow. And I said, well, you know, I guess I'm coming to meet you. Where are you? And she said, uh, get up in the morning, fly to Boston, come to the Four Seasons, call me when you get here. And three hours after I got to the Four Seasons, I'm at Foxborough Stadium shooting the Rolling Stones in front of 70,000 people. Oh my God, that's amazing. And then we leave there and we get in vans and go out to the airport and we get on a private jet. And for sure, I don't know where to sit on that thing. Yeah. And I'm just standing there in the middle of the aisle like an idiot. And Bobby Keys was in the band. And Bobby was in Keith's band. Mm -hmm. So I knew him from being on the road with Keith. And he looks at me and he beckons me over and he says, looks like you're having a problem there. Come on and sit with me. Thank so I ended up sitting with him for the whole, I was supposed to do a month with the Stones on that tour, on the Steel Wheels tour. So I sat with Bobby and Bill Wyman. Oh, my God. And, and we, we just, Bill Wyman just kept on looking out the window to make sure the wing didn't fall off. <laughs> and Bobby would tell stories about, like, being on the road in the 50s with, you know, like, rock and roll guys from the 50s. The Stones used to open for bands he was in. That's amazing. It's like rock and, and roll fantasy camp for yeah. you. Yeah. And then, like, three weeks into my month, I'm figuring, okay, you know, now this is the greatest thing that's ever happened. I mean, nothing gets better than this. And, uh, and I get a call in my room, the Ritz Carlton in New York from Keith's manager. And she says, Hey, can you come up to my room? And I go up to her room and I knock on the door. She opens the door and she's standing there. Mick's manager is standing there and the publicist is standing there. And it's like being called, to the principal's office, you know? yeah, for sure. Like, what did I do wrong? This could either be really yeah. good or really shitty. I, I, all I could think of was I'm going home tomorrow. <laughs> right. Maybe I'm going home today, you know? And 
they all stood there and looking at me and Keith's manager says, we got a problem. And I said, what's the problem? And she said, well, you're scheduled to leave us in a week, but everybody in the band likes you. We love your work and we want you to stay for the rest of the tour, which is another two and a half months. And how do you say no to that? You don't, especially, I mean, you were much younger. I mean, of course you don't. Well, I wasn't, my, I was younger, but I was still pretty old in those days, in those days. I mean, that was, that was 30 years ago, but I'm 70 now. So, you know, you I couldn't young. do it. I couldn't do it today. I oh God, no. But, uh, so I did three and a half months on the road with them. That's the coolest. And, you know, we flew all over back and forth across the country because they don't follow a route. They have three stages that are all set up in various parts of the country and they fly from one to the other. There's a West coast stage an East coast stage and a Midwest stage. And so we'll play four days in New York. And then two days later, we're playing four days in LA. Right. So we, you know, got a lot of, lot of mileage in flying around the country with them. And uh, that was the greatest thing that ever happened to me. Yeah, I, I can't imagine topping that. I mean, that's... Well, I've done two other tours with them, you know, like not for as long, but mm-hmm. and I did a month on the Voodoo Lounge tour and that was fun, but it's it couldn't top the Steel Wheels tour. Yeah, because that was also, like you said, that was the reunion. It was the reconciliation between Mick and Keith. Yeah. I mean, there, there was, was so much... that was never supposed to happen. Right. There, and it happened. So much behind that. Uh, jumping around to some of the other shots, I, I guess I, I wanted to ask, when did you start shooting? Because some of these pictures go back to the mid seventies. Like when did you first get in front of a band? First show I ever shot was I was a sports photographer and I was shooting a tennis match up in Evanston on the Northwestern campus. And I was parked across the street, across Sheridan road next to a building called Khan auditorium. Sure. Which is right where Sheridan road turns like it turns in, in the middle of Northwestern campus. And I was parked up against the wall of Khan Auditorium. And the, the tennis match was over like at seven o'clock. No lights, so it had to be over before it got dark. And I went back to my car and uh, put my stuff in the trunk and I started the engine. And there was a commercial on the radio that there was a concert that night that was taking place five feet away from where I was sitting. I couldn't make this up if I tried. Seriously. And it was this girl that I just barely heard of by the name of Bonnie Raitt. And she was just starting out. Her first album was out and she was playing at Count Auditorium. And uh, so I shut off the engine and I figured, okay, I'm here. I've managed to BS my way into any sporting event that I wanted to go to in the city of Chicago. Let's see if I could BS my way into a concert. Cause I was always a music fan. Yeah. So I uh, got out all my equipment and I made up this lie that I was working for this new magazine called Rolling Stone magazine. (laughs) I figured nobody had ever heard of Rolling Stone and it just started a couple years before. And, you know, they weren't going to have somebody there. So I could lie about that. And I got to the back door and I opened the door and there's a guard sitting there and I got ready to tell my big lie. And before I could, say anything he looks at me and he sees my cameras hanging and he says uh oh you're with the press go in and do whatever you want just don't get on stage and like easy no problem i'm there it was never that easy again ever for sure but just that started my career it was meant to be at that point it was absolutely meant to be i figured if i could just walk into concerts what could be better than that you know for real. I mean, that, that's that's the American dream, I'm pretty yeah. sure. Everybody I, else has to pay, and I get the best seats. Where did you shoot Bob Marley? I shot him twice. I shot him once at the Auditorium Theater, and the picture that's in the book I shot at the Uptown Theater. Okay. that's I, I, I was aware that he did a show there. That, I yeah. Uptown was, the Uptown was the second show that I shot of him. For and those of us... It was great. I'm sure. For those of us who never had the chance to go to the Uptown, there are so many legends around it. Was it as awesome as people recall, or is that 
kind it of was, revisionist uh, history. It was pretty awesome. There were some amazing shows that I saw there. I saw, I think, five separate Grateful, Grateful Dead shows there. I saw at least four Springsteen shows there. Wow. Rod Stewart, Peter Gabriel. Oh, my uh, God. Genesis with Peter Gabriel in the band. Um, Jay Giles band were they were the last band to ever play there. Mm-hmm. They shut it down the next day, and uh, it was a great place. The only problem was there's no place to park. Right, which is the problem in the present day for that area right. as well. Exactly, exactly. You mentioned the dead. Where was the picture of Jerry Garcia taken? Probably there. I don't. Oh, I don't remember at the moment. I don't have it in front of me, but probably there. I, I was looking through the book, wondering if I'd been to any of the shows that you shot. I mean, some of these were uh, maybe a little bit before my time. One of the best shows, I swear to God, one of the best shows I've ever been to is captured in this book, and that's PJ Harvey, 1995. That was the that was the Vic. That had to be the Vic. Yeah, right? yeah. yeah. That, yeah. That was, she is. I such shot her a lot. I, you know, just I I used to work for. It's it's ironic considering the conversation we had before we got on the air. I used to work for Sure Microphones, and that's a Sure Microphone in front of you. Uh, and she was an endorser. So I used to photograph her every time she came to town. I shot her like five times. But that's the best picture I've ever gotten of her. So good. Uh, some of my fa- I, I love Bowie. I, to no end, I love David Bowie. And you have two of my favorite pictures in the book are of Bowie. One from 77, so that was low-era Bowie. Right. And then from the Serious Moonlight Tour in 83, you've got Bowie in the cracked actor, sunglasses, the, the Yorick uh, skull in his hand. That picture to me is iconic. And that, that, is, that is so symbolic of that tour. Well, that's a, here's the, I mean, here, I keep on going back to the, I have to go back to the beginning of this conversation. Uh, so my friend Steve was his publicist. And he told all the photographers that night, you can only shoot three songs and we're going to escort you out of the building. You can't even stay to watch the show. Oh my God. And, uh, and then he came up to me as he was escorting us all into the photo pit. He came up to me and he said, you know, when I escort everybody out, just get in the back of the line. And when everybody else goes up the stairs, just like peel off and, go into the crowd and wait about five minutes and then just go back in there. And, and he let me like, that didn't happen during the first three songs. Of course. Well, he posed for me because he figured I had to know somebody. There had to be a reason that I was there, that I was standing right in front of him by myself in this big empty photo pit. Yeah. And to your point, I mean, three songs into a Bowie show, he changes looks and scenes and i mean th- that show oh, yeah. was it, oh, yeah. it, it changed throughout it it'd be like shooting talking heads on the stop making sense tour and leaving before the full band got on stage right when it was only the four of them which is yeah. not bad but you know or just yeah, exactly and be you, better. Do, you do have talking heads in there from 1980 i think yeah from the aragon i i just love how your history and this book bounces across times and in genres too i mean even folk music you have some artists in there that you know i think the job of a storyteller is to make the subject interesting to people who think they're not interested in the subject right case in point you have a picture of peter paul and mary from 1978 an artist i generally think i don't give a shit about i looked at that picture and thought oh, that's awesome it's one of my favorite pictures and nobody's ever bought it i've it's- never sold it anywhere for any reason whatsoever but it had to be in the book because it, had to. It, it, it was a technical challenge. And I was always, my mother raised me on listening to folk music. Sure. And when I got a chance to shoot Peter, Paul, and Mary, first of all, you got to get all three of them in the same picture. Right. And most times when three, when there's like Crosby, Stills and Nash, when they play together, Crosby's over here, Nash is over here, Stills is in the middle. Mm-hmm. And there's all this dead space in between them. So it's impossible to get a good picture of the three of them together. Right. Unless they're off stage. So I, I'm thinking the same thing's going to happen with Peter, Paul, and Mary. And I get there, 
and they've got this fancy microphone stand with three microphones on the same stand. So they got to be right next to each other. So the goal was to figure out where to be to get the best angle, to not get a microphone in front of somebody's face. Right. And I, it was luck. I got in the right place. And there's a kinetic energy to that shot, which I love yeah. so much an energy that you, you, you wouldn't necessarily see or, or feel coming from that music. You should go out and buy some Peter Paul and Mary albums. You'll love them. <laughs> I guess They're I should. Amazing. I listen to them all the time. Do you really? Yeah. All right. I'll go back. I, and have, listen. I have like 3000 songs in my iTunes. And I, when I'm working around the house, I just like, okay, here, I'm going to listen to Peter Paul and Mary. Now I'm going to listen to Bob Dylan. Now I'm going to listen to guns and roses. Now. Uh, Guns and Roses, also in the book. Another interesting thing that, that comes from reading this book, again, the book is available now. It's an amazing coffee table book. It's a, it's a must-have. Um, right place, right time. There are a couple examples of pictures in this book where you, Paul Natkin, were in front of the right band at the right time, whether it's Quiet Riot, uh, or more interestingly to me, the Go-Go's at Chicago Fest. That picture of the Go Go's, my God, they they look they look as young as they were then. They were. I didn't even know who they were. I was I was the official photographer of Chicago Fest, so I used to just I get there in the morning, like at noon, you know, eleven o'clock, and there were five stages along Navy Pier, and I would just walk from stage to stage, and one of them was a jazz stage, one was a blues stage, one was a country stage. And there were big bands that played on these stages. And Muddy Waters would play on the blues stage. And I would just walk from stage to stage, photograph each band. And I remember walking the rock stages all the way at the end of Navy Pier. And I got there about 11.45. And the first band went on at noon. And I walk up and there's these two girls, two cute girls, sunning themselves on lawn chairs out in front of the dressing room. Uh, and I walked up to them and said, hey, are you guys in the band? And they said, yeah, we're in the first band. And I said, well, how many people are in the band? They said, there's three more in the trailer. And I said, can, can we go inside and kind of take some pictures of you guys? And they said, sure, no problem. And we uh, went inside. I took like six pictures. Never thought I'd ever hear of them again. And then they got they got really big. And they used to come over to my house when they came to town. And, you know, we were... I, I was in I was in LA once and I I went to see Richard Thompson play in Beverly Hills and uh I was with some friends that drove and if you don't drive in LA you're screwed. There's no cabs, there's no there's no way to get anywhere. And I was staying in Hollywood and uh and my friends wanted to leave. And I wanted to stay and shoot pictures of Richard Thompson. Yeah. And Jane Wheedland walked up to me from the Go-Go's and she said, Hey, what are you doing here? And I said, well, you know, I'm getting ready to leave because these guys are leaving and they're my ride. And she said, well, you know, just I'll drive you home after I'll drive you back to the hotel afterwards. So I stayed. And then she got so drunk that I wouldn't get in the car with her. And luckily I found a cab and I got back to the hotel, but that's, you know, she didn't think she was okay with that, but you know, and we've been friends ever since. I mean, I saw them a couple of years ago and they're still great. They're still great. Let's talk about what is, I think one of your most iconic shots. It's Ozzy with Randy Rhodes taking it, <laughs> taking at the Rosemont horizon. Right. I mean, that's, that's it. I mean, that's peak Ozzy Osbourne. It was, yeah. uh, it was another total accident, not an accident, but, um, I wasn't even supposed to be there. I was, uh, it was Super Bowl Sunday. And I'm a sports fan. Right. So I was hired by a keyboard magazine to shoot pictures of Ozzy's keyboard player, who in those days, you were considered a wimp if you were in a metal band and you had a keyboard sure. player. So they, the stage was this big castle with these two turrets on either side. And they put the keyboard player up in one of the turrets where you couldn't see him. Of course. But you could hear him because he was, right. you know, he was playing. He was in the band. So uh publicist said, well, you know, I don't know how you're going to shoot him. There's, you know, you can't see him from in front of the stage. And 
I said, well, what if I go to soundcheck? Because the only thing that I cared about was getting home in time to watch the Super Bowl. So he said, yeah, you know, come to soundcheck and, you know, just walk up to the circular stairs in the turret. Walk up there. The guy's name was Don Airy. Uh, walk up there and introduce yourself and take some pictures of him. So I did. It was like five o'clock in the afternoon, four in the afternoon. The game started earlier in those days. It started like at six. Mm-hmm. And uh, so I'm thinking I got enough time. If I pack up my stuff really quick, I can get in my car and get home to watch the Super Bowl. So I, I'm getting ready to leave. And the publicist was there. And he said, well, where are you going? <laughs> I've been in that situation. And how do you say to him, like, you know, I don't care about your stinking band. I want to go home and watch the Super Bowl. Mm -hmm. So I said, well, you know, like, I got got other plans. I got to go. And he says, I know you want to go watch the Super Bowl. And I said, yeah, that's kind of it. And he says, well, I'll tell you what. um, We're all, all the Americans on tour are watching the Super Bowl backstage. And Ozzy's not going on until the game's over. So just come backstage and have dinner with us and watch the Super Bowl and then stay and shoot the show because you'll really like it. So, yes. you know, there was never any question that I was going to shoot the whole show. So I watched the Super Bowl with them. A bunch of English guys that didn't know anything about football. Right. We had to explain to them what was going on every step of the way. And then uh, I shot the show. And at one point, Ozzy picks Randy up and holds him over his head. And I took a picture and like a month later, Randy dies in a plane crash. And uh, it's become the most famous picture I've ever taken. And it's been on everything. Everything. It's, everything. I'm looking up right now. There's a snowboard hanging from the wall in my office with that picture on it. It's, it's an iconic shot. I mean, that is yeah. that, that yeah. moment of the 80s for metal, for Ozzy, for all of that. Yeah, but I should have been watching the, the Super Bowl. That's serendipity. You mentioned in the book, one of the most exciting days of photography in your career was shooting Amnesty International in the 1980s. And that was just like superstar a go-go at that event. It was, uh, it was pretty cool. It was pretty cool. Um, the, the most interesting part of it was that whole first three songs thing mm-hmm. was in effect in those days. So here's this organization that's supposedly about freeing people from jail. After every band played three songs, they would take all the photographers and they'd lock us in a room. (laughs) Irony duly noted on that. Yeah. Yeah. But, you know, that was before I decided I wasn't going to fall for that. And the only band that let us shoot the whole show was U2. I mean, if you had to pick one to shoot. No, oh, the police were, I would have picked them probably over you too. But, you know, I got good pictures of all of them, everybody. Uh, Peter Gabriel was on that show. Lou Reed was on that show. Is the, the picture from Lou Reed in your book, is that, from, that's mullet era Lou Reed. So I'm thinking that's probably the same time. Yeah. No, it wasn't, that wasn't from there. That was actually, uh, I, uh, I spent about five years working for this woman that runs a talk show in Chicago, ran a talk show in Chicago. You might've heard of her. Mm-hmm. Uh, and because of that, I became known as a guy that was really good at shooting pictures on TV shows. And David Letterman did a week's worth of shows at the Chicago theater. Mm-hmm. And the first day he was on, this was right across the street from where Oprah's studio was. Right, right. So he had our, he had her on as a guest. So NBC hired me because I figured, okay, you know Oprah, she's going to be comfortable with you being there. So and they said, why don't you shoot? We'll pay you to shoot the whole week. So I shot the whole week for them, but I kept the pictures for myself too. And one one of them, Lou Reed, was one of the musical guests one of the days. Awesome. So this was what year? 88 you said i don't i can't remember i don't have the book in front of me i should have it in front of me but i don't well what people can do if they're curious they can get the book and they can find out for themselves all the dates are on the bottom of the pages Uh, another thing i wanted to ask you a lot of shots came from poplar creek i I saw lots of hoffman estates credits 
Was that the last great outdoor venue in Chicago? That was the only great outdoor venue in Chicago. <laughs> uh, it, it, it's uh, it's really an interesting story. I, I have, you know, I worked for a Chicago, for a Chicago Fest for the, the entire run of Chicago Fest. And there's a woman there that was the publicist for Chicago Fest. And she had a friend who was moving here from Detroit to build a venue out in the suburbs. It was before there were, Alpine Valley was around, but that was the only right. outdoor venue. Otherwise people would have to play at the Rosemont Horizon or the Chicago Stadium. So her friend Lou came to town and he picked out a piece of property and he plotted out where this venue was going to go. And he's a very meticulous guy. He actually figured out, he camped out there for a while and he figured out where the sun was going to set. So it wouldn't be in the eyes of the performers or of the audience. That's the attention to detail. Yeah, I was going to say that, that that's detail oriented construction. Right and there. he built the perfect venue. And meanwhile, Chicago Fest ended and my friend Jill ended up marrying this guy. And she was hired to be the publicist for this new venue called Poplar Creek. So I was friends with both of them. And Lou, his name is Lou Raisin. And Lou uh, called me up one day and he says, well, why don't you come and be our official photographer? And we'll give you a total access pass. And we'll give you a parking pass where you could pull in backstage. Amazing. And park with the fire trucks. You don't have to have a fire truck there in case a fire starts. Yeah, yeah. So I had the best access that anybody could ever hope to have. That would and, explain all the Poplar Creek shots in the book. Okay. Yeah, and I would go out there, you know, four times a week. Why not? And I would shoot. I wouldn't just go out there to shoot, you know, Phil Collins. I'd go out there to shoot Pavarotti. Yeah. Because I could. Right. Not because I went and shot Lawrence Welk. Oh, you've got some, all I had to do was show my pass and I could walk right in. You, you do have a lot of old school, like different era superstars in there. You've got yeah. Dean, Sammy and uh, Frank Sinatra. in there. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. I, I love that stuff. I, you know, and that stuff is valuable. For sure. I mean, you're you're an archivist. You're telling yeah, mu yeah. music history in, in pictures. I love it. Well, I'm an archivist that stopped archiving about 10 years ago because nobody lets me shoot anymore. What a crime. Well, in, in the looking backward, the, the stuff you have to date is so spectacular. I mean, I, I use the word iconic probably too many times in this conversation, but <coughs> these are iconic pictures. The one last picture I want to ask you about before I cut you loose, Melon Camp in the Garbage Can. <laughs> oh, boy. I'm not sure if I should tell this story. Well, I was going to say, Mellencamp's not known for having a sense of humor. Um, no, he does not. Uh, um, I didn't even know who he was. I never heard of him. And so this was very early in his career. Sorry. When his first album came out. Okay. And he was staying at a hotel on Michigan Avenue. And I got a call from the Illinois Entertainer. They called me up and said, hey, can you go down and take pictures of this guy, Johnny Cougar? And when I worked for the Illinois Entertainer, they paid $20 a photograph. And it costs, at that point, like $15 to park. Right, of course. The roll of film was about $4. The printing was another $5, you know, because it's no digital stuff, so I had to make prints and send them to them. Mm -hmm. I had to mail them to them, so postage. So guaranteed to lose money. Guaranteed. Guaranteed before I even left the house. So I go down there and I call him in his room. It was at the Intercontinental Hotel, which is right on Michigan Avenue next to the Tribune Towers. And uh, it's very grumpy. And he says, come on up to the room. And I go up to his room. And he says, I don't really want to do this. Let's make this really quick. And he gets up. If I had a nickel for every time I heard that. Well, I, if I had a nickel every time I heard that, I'd be rich. Uh, gets up and we go out to the elevator. We go down to the, the lobby was on the second floor. 
Then we had to walk. We had to ride down an escalator down to the street level. And we're riding down the escalator and he turns to me and he says, let's make this really quick. And uh, we walk out on the street and he dives into a garbage can. And he says, shoot the picture. And I shot two pictures. And he gets up, he dusts himself off and he says, that's it, we're done. And goes back in the hotel. That was it. And so to this weird. day, he thinks it's one of the greatest pictures of him ever taken. And he's got it hanging in his living room. That's crazy. But, you know, he's, he's not a nice person. Let's put it that way. Uh, I started, shortly after that, I started working for Farm Aid. Mm, right. And uh, I became the official Farm, farm Aid photographer from... 1990 until about four years ago. Donated my time, donated all my expenses. All they did is they gave me a hotel room wherever Farm Maid was and I shot for them, gave them all the pictures. And uh, loved everybody that worked for Farm Aid. They're all great people, they're wonderful people. And then about five years ago, I got into a slight argument with Mr. Mellencamp backstage. And uh, he said something to me, and I called him an asshole. And about a week after Farm Aid that year, the woman that runs Farm Aid called and said, John has requested that you no longer come to Farm Aid. And that was it for me. Wow. So, you know, it's great while it lasted. I got great pictures of Willie Nelson and Neil Young. Uh, who are both in the book. By the way, Neil Young, the picture of him, uh, he it's hard for him not to look like a badass. Oh, he's a total badass. Total badass. The that shot you have earlier, earlier farm in. Yeah. That, he, that, that, that is a great vi vision of Neil Young in your book. Yeah. And he's, uh, he's the real deal. He is the real deal. You're the real deal, Paul Natkin. Well, you know, I'm trying. Uh, you're succeeding. I love this book. I, I love the work you do. I mean, to me, this is a form of storytelling. And I think you know, it's true. A picture can tell a story if it's taken the right way and if you're mindful of what you're doing uh these pictures all tell stories they tell stories of different times eras movements feelings and expressions in music again across all genres from muddy waters to uh john prine to the beastie boys i, I love this book uh it comes in handsome slipcase editions suitable for any bookshelf there are a variety of slipcase editions uh that you can order on trope.com Maybe the Freddie Mercury, David Bowie combo is appealing. It's appealing to me. <laughs> um, lots of choices based on your moods. Uh, really lovely to connect with you and, and have an excuse to talk about what you do and talk about rock and roll history. No problem.